OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to Supporters Fund, Ask an Investor. I'm your host, Jeffrey Potvin. Uh, let's please welcome Jake Prigoff, partner of Gangels, New York. As our investor today, welcome, Jake. It's a real pleasure having you join us today. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. I'm super excited to kind of dive into your background because, well, it's very unique, the background you have when it comes to the types of interviews that we get to have. So I'm excited to kind of pick it apart because I love the fact that you're an MD and all the great things that you've done in your career and being able to go through all of the dissertations and papers and awards. It's pretty impressive. But I think the end result for me is the detail and the level of detail you have to have in order to be a doctor, but also now moving into the space that you are, it's kind of exciting because you're bringing a whole different style of how to operate inside of this early stage space. So we're excited to dive in. And the way we like to kind of jump into the show is that we want you to kind of give us a bit of a background and you can go as far back as your university days but just kind of sharing all the great things that you've done to get to where you are today and kind of the, the outfit that you're part of and what you guys are doing. And then one thing about you that nobody would know. Sure. Um, so my background is, is really mostly in the healthcare space, as, as you alluded to. Um, I got started in cancer research. Uh, I was doing mostly clinical research and also a lot of advocacy work as well. Um, I'm a cancer survivor, and, and so naturally this space is of tremendous importance to me. Um, and so I was working with a couple of different organizations, uh, the SAS Foundation for Medical Research, Memorial Sloan Kettering, mostly in, in philanthropic endeavors. Um, eventually, I decided to take the leap uh, to med school. So I went to Mount Sinai in New York on the Upper East Side. Um, and then I did my residency at Columbia, um, where most of my research was still focused within oncology, mostly surgical oncology, um, but I did quite a bit of education research as well. I took a year away from clinical medicine to, uh, to teach at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, their, their medical school, um, and so did, did a bunch of research there as well. Um, and I happened upon Gangel's, uh, the firm that I'm at now, um, through a friend of a friend. And he brought me to uh, a pitch night when this was pre-COVID, where you know we used to gather in a room together and hear a couple of pitches from uh, early stage founders um, and decide what companies uh, we wanted to invest in. Um, and so that's how I found Gangels. And uh, during the initial wave of COVID, this is kind of my transition now a little bit from clinical medicine to venture. Um, during uh, my time while I was teaching at Columbia, uh, the initial wave of COVID hit. And uh, because I was non-clinical then, I didn't have my malpractice insurance active. So it was going to take about another month to just figure that out before I can go volunteer in the hospital as a physician. And so during that month, I was working with my clinical knowledge and the engineers from Columbia, as well as hospital leadership, to try to answer a couple of key questions, right? One, what do clinicians need? Um, two, what can the engineers build? And three, what will hospital leadership uh, support? 
And those three questions at the heart of it are what venture capital is about for me. Um, it's finding a need, figuring out what you can make and, and how to build a company um, around that. And so I got very excited about that. And that was, you know, a couple of years ago and about a year and a half ago, I decided to fully transition away from clinical medicine. And I came over to Gangels to lead the healthcare investments. Um, and so it probably makes sense for me to just kind of give you a, a little overview on Gangels and, and who we are. Um, we were founded about eight years ago as an LGBT angel organization. And that's how we existed for about four years. Um, it was LGBT investors investing into LGBT founders, very much at the angel stage. And in 2018, um, my business partner, uh, David, he, he tells this story much better than I do, but he was at uh, lunch with a friend, Colin Walsh, uh, who's the, the CEO of a company called Varro Money, um, fintech company. And they had just raised a large Series B and they had a small bit of allocation left. And so they asked Gangels if we wanted to participate in it. And this was pretty atypical for us as an angel group, right? To, to invest into a true venture-led Series B. Um, and we did it and people got very excited about it. And we realized that there is a need uh, in the venture ecosystem for diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and people who support um, and really drive that mission. And so in 2018, we kind of flipped our model a little bit. So we kind of operate in two spaces. One is to find diverse founders um, and support them because that's important. And the other is to find companies that need help in their diversity journey um, and to support them as well and give them the resources and the knowledge they need to improve upon their DEI initiatives um, because that's that's important too. So, uh, you know, I think since 2018, we've grown pretty significantly. 2018, we deployed about 5 million in capital. Last year, we deployed over 400 million in capital. Um, I think it's a testament to the fact that, A, the industry really needed something like this. They needed people to uh, to kind of push this mission and support this mission. Um, and and B, that, that, that they genuinely are embracing it. Um, and they're welcoming us and our organization and our investors with open arms. Um, so we're pretty excited about that. And I'll stop there because otherwise I could just talk for days. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, no, that's a great story. Um, and thank you for sharing that. I, I do want to kind of step a little bit back before we go through kind of everything that you're doing at uh, Gangels. And I think, again, amazing. Um, but to, to go back to your the clinical side of things, and I think a lot of this clinical stuff kind of prepares you for what you're doing today. And I kind of like to dive into that a little bit. And as I was going through some of your papers and the things that you had uh, that written and you kind of do your research on, uh, maybe you can share a little bit about how that process works that once you go through and become, um, I guess, on the surgeon side, you then have to go into clinical. So you start doing a lot of papers, a lot of research, and your papers go all the way down for many different years, and you're part of books. Um, is that part of the whole structure for you to become a surgeon, or is this the initiative you took in order to refine your skills on where you wanted to fit in once you had been fully um indoctrinated, I guess, into the medical field? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, and something that I haven't thought about in quite some time. So I didn't really go all the way back when I was at the University of Michigan for undergrad. Uh, I was an economics major and uh, pretty atypical for, for medical students. But um, one of the things that I focused on 
during that time was labor economics and and uh, education economics and and why people get higher education and what they hope to accomplish with that, right? And it kind of breaks out into, I promise I'm getting to a point here. Um, it, it breaks out into kind of two different things, right? One is practical knowledge and, and practical skills, right? Because we go to school to, to get that. But the other is as a signal um, because it's important for future employers to recognize that this person can make their way through high school or make their way through college or get a, you know, have a good GPA. And so um, really, we all we all know this, right? But to break it down at a high level as to why we go to college, why people you know get their high school degree, a big part of it is to signal to future employers that you have the capacity to accomplish something. Um, and in a way, that's what a lot of academic research is when you're in medical school, when you're in residency. Um, is yes, naturally there is a clinical interest, right? Or a scientific interest in the subject matter. Um, but you're also building out your resume and you're earning, you know, you're, you're learning new skills and building out kind of your war chest, if you will, of, uh, of abilities. Um, and so I started my clinical research before medical school. Um, and I continued through medical school. And certainly when I was applying into residency, uh, it was a, a nice feather in my cap to say, you know, these are some of the things that I've accomplished. Now, that's also putting aside the actual drive to impact the healthcare uh, system, which is very central to who I am as a human being. Um, and the way that we advance medicine is through these research studies. Um, it's it's actually an odd kind of juxtaposition to how industry uh grows and and how a lot of startups grow because in venture right we want the we want companies to have to have the potential for rapid scalability right we want them to grow relatively quick not too quick right but but you know kind of measured but rapid uh growth um whereas in academia it's very different um you want to make sure that you get it right is kind of the key. Um, and so it takes a long time. And like you said, you have to be very detail oriented and very diligent about the process. Um, and so I actually quite enjoy the, the intersection of those two things where I can see academic medicine kind of playing into some of the startups that we work with. And, and I can totally see that and, and see the pattern of where this goes, because if you start to look at um, that rapid scalability that you talked about, there's also the detail-oriented side of where investors like yourself put a lot of focus, which is on the founder to start. And kind of where I was going with this level of detail and the way that you built out your CV, um, your CV is very impressive. But as a, you. when you look at it from um, an investor standpoint, it's obviously amazing because you've detailed out all of the papers, everything that you're part of, the awards. And I think what this brings a level of value to uh, the investor, but also if you were running a company, what this brings to the person is knowing that you're going to do what it takes from a level of detail, what it takes to uh, appeal to the audience that you're going after, and that you're going to be really thorough on how you're approaching the market. And this makes a big difference when we're looking at CVs today of a lot of founders where they have very minimal experience, knowledge, or understanding of either starting a company or two, being in this space that they're going and everybody's like, oh, it doesn't matter. You can figure it out as you go. Sure. Yes, to a point, but it's also very difficult to just take on something brand new. 
And what I what I liked about going through a lot of the the papers that you had written, um, you were going through the opiate crisis, you were going through uh, breast augmentation, like different pieces that were kind of obviously related to health, but there were also things that were really now that were happening that people were facing at the time. And then you were doing research on it, um, proving uh, out your hypothesis and coming up with an answer, which I think is very valuable to, again, to the startup community learning, hey, if I'm going to start a company, where should I go? And taking how you were structuring this, you were going after the hot topics because those hot topics are where a lot of people are putting their interest. Is that fair to say that um, maybe startup founders need to start looking at what kind of work they've done, what they're trying to do, beef up that presentation of themselves and start to to dabble more into proving things in the space that they're going after. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. You're never going to come up with a replacement for experience, right? Um, I, I don't have the the data on uh, you know off the top of my head to back this up, but but I would certainly argue that the uh, founders who are the most likely to succeed are ones who have previously successfully built a company. Right. Um, so that experience is a huge value add. Uh, I, I think what you're what you're getting at here um, is something that I was actually talking to someone about the other day, an early stage founder about the other day, which is a really thorough needs assessment. Um, and that exists in both academia and in industry, but in different ways. Um, but they very much parallel each other um, within academia. Uh, folks want to come up with something new and exciting. Right. Nobody is going to get published in the top academic journals by telling people that ibuprofen is helpful for pain. Right. Because we all know that that knowledge already exists. And so within academia, what we're hoping to do is find and discover new and exciting um, either information or technologies or medications uh, and present it to the world. Right. And the only way that you can do that is by thoroughly understanding the atmosphere that you're playing in and the problem that you're going after. Um, and that very much translates to uh, the startup community as well. Um, what I was uh, I was speaking with somebody uh, yesterday, this early stage uh, founder, um, because they're, they're struggling a bit to find product market fit. And. They're doing a ton of customer interviews and they're reaching out to end users. And I asked them, you know, how many folks within the startup community, how many founders in the space have you spoken with? How, you know, how many of those interviews have you conducted? And it was relatively limited, um, right? Because in a way that that's going to be their competition. But if instead they can take that information and leverage it in a needs assessment to say, okay, well, I know that 15 companies are struggling with this problem and none of them are addressing that problem because it's not at the heart of what they're trying to do, but they're all struggling with this problem and they haven't found a solution. That is, is an opportunity for exploration. Um, because if, if those people who I imagine are, are smart and driven and accomplished, um, haven't found a solution to the problem that they have, then there you go. That's something that, that you need to dive into. So when you're talking about the needs um, assessment uh, protocol or how you're going to build this out, can you give us a little bit of a better idea of what that looks like from a founder's perspective? Again, this is, I think, very important for this early, early stage company that is trying to find market fit. They're spending time, money, effort, 
and they're spinning their wheels, or at least in their mind, they feel like they're spinning wheels. And you just gave them an idea of, hey, maybe you're testing on the wrong group. Maybe you're not solving it for the right group. Uh, how do you determine that through your needs assessment? What are some of the tricks that you can look at? Um, and how level of detail do you need in order to make this uh, get to a point where you feel like, okay, we're in the right spot. Now let's start driving this because we've burned through three months or six months of time. Yeah, it's it's a good question, and and I will uh, kind of preface this by saying I am not a founder. I have never built a company, and so this is certainly not my area of expertise. But getting back to your earlier point, I will translate my background within academia to the space, um, which is to say, and with a, with a slight modification, um, within academic medicine, you want to find a problem that is unsolved, right? And not only do you want to look at every single study that has tangentially even touched the problem that you're looking to address, but you want to thoroughly understand the problem um, and make sure that it actually is a problem, right? Because the worst thing that you could do is try to solve a problem that doesn't actually exist. But um, to, to translate that over into industry, uh, I think makes perfect sense, right? Um, somebody, for let, let, we'll just take an example, right? I can very easily say, okay, I want to start a company and I want to cure cancer that means nothing, right? It, I mean, it means everything, but it means nothing, right? Because I have no idea whether I'm talking about a therapeutics company, a diagnostics company, a care delivery company. Um, and so as you slowly kind of work your way down those different decision points of, okay, what do I want to actually build? Um, that's really where you have to dig in. And the level of detail is going to change at every level, you know, that you, that you need to make a decision. Um, I would say my personal investment thesis, and this is this is you know me personally not representative of really anything else, um, is that I always look for companies and I get excited about companies that actually have line of sight to impact patients and to impact providers. Um, somebody once said to me, and I don't agree with this, but I understand where they're coming from. Somebody once said to me that medicine is where innovation goes to die, and. Uh, what they were really trying to get at is that there is a lot of innovation um, that will end up sitting on a shelf somewhere. And that could be software, that could be device, that could be, you know, therapeutics, diagnostics, whatever it is, that people pour time and energy and blood, sweat and tears into and nobody ever uses it. Um, and so for me personally, uh, when somebody's doing a needs assessment, they have to thoroughly understand how am I going to actually impact patients with this? How am I going to impact the health system with this? And I, that's very well said. And, and I think that your, obviously to your background, it lines up perfectly to how a startup works or should work. So ideally it's how can I understand what I'm trying to solve? Um, and, but defining the problem by going and looking at the existing research or data that's out there. Now I'm going to say that probably in the um, academia world and medical world, tie those together that it's very thorough and there is a lot of research because, uh, and this goes to kind of my next question is that when you start to look at and do this research and you find that gap, the thing is, is that in startup world, finding that gap, everybody just thinks there's a gap everywhere. But in the medical world, there's like, if there's a gap, it's a small gap and you're going after that gap because you can find so much research that's been done on so many areas of, of research and medical that you can kind of refine it and go in and say, okay, here's the sliver we're going after. Whereas 
I think in a lot of the startup world, you're just making assumptions until you find out that nobody wants to buy your product. Then you're repivoting, pivoting, and pivoting because there isn't mounds of data that's really out there. But I think what you're saying is that you can create that still. You can still look at this just the way you would in medical and academia and say, find that problem and still research the hell out of it. There is information out there. You're just not putting the time into getting it. So you're not going to perfect yourself. You, maybe you need to be a blue type personality because you need to be really data focused. But this is going to change the way your business works. And if you don't do this, you're going to tend to spin your wheels more in the startup phase because you're being too broad and you're going after fighting cancer instead of refining that down. Is that a fair way of assessing what you share? I, I, yes and no. A, I think you give the medical community a little too much credit. Um, yes, there is there 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 are a ton of clinical trials. There's a ton of medical data um, and academic publications that address a lot within medicine, um, but there are pretty significant gaps and people trying to address them, right? But also the idea that um, that every medical publication or every academic publication is, is right, right? We're wrong about a lot of stuff. You can go look at, at, at my CV and those, those papers that I published and uh, you know, you'll probably find a couple of concluding statements that seem very, uh, very sure about whatever conclusions you know, we drew in, in that study. Um, but I would almost guarantee you that you can go out and find a study that says the exact opposite, right? And so what the medical community is great about doing is, is kind of aggregating all of that information. Um, and I say great about doing, we're not really all that great about doing it, but we try. Um, but we recognize that there is a, a difference in the level of evidence offered from one study to the next, right? And you know, at, at the highest, and, and you, can, you can Google it, there's a pyramid of what, of what they are. At the bottom of it is essentially expert opinion. It's some random person saying, well, from my experience, this is what we should do. Um, and at the top of it, it's, you know, randomized, uh, blinded, you know, control studies. Um, and, and they offer a different level of, um, of, uh, of evidence. Um, and so to say that the medical community has, has gone about, you know, every little facet within medicine in a very detailed way, um, you know, maybe it's true. Maybe we've touched a lot, of, a lot of things, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and then translating that over into uh, the venture community, it's, it's interesting, right? Because, and I, I happen to be close, you know, naturally still with a bunch of academics, it takes a really, really long time for them to see clinical benefit from the, the studies that they run, right? It could be 10 years, 15 years before it touches the lives of a patient. That's not what industry is about. Industry is, a, you know, the 80-20 rule is kind of a, a great model here where it's, all right, we're, we're 80% sure that this is going to work. Let's dive in, see if it's going to work. We'll spend a month doing it and we'll find out pretty quickly. Um, now, naturally, if there's any type of medical implication there, there are regulatory uh, hurdles that they need to overcome. But, um, but, but that's what I like about industry. It's saying, all right, we're not 100% sure here, but we're going to dive in and we're going to give it a shot. Um, you got to go in with a level of certainty, but it should never be 100%. And I think that shares well that 
you're using the number 80%. And I think this would be very, it becomes very helpful for a startup to say that if I have a target of going out and pitching a problem and getting investors to want to come and invest in me, I have to be 80% sure of the direction I'm going or the problem I'm solving. And I'm going to probably, and using that as kind of the benchmark, because I think if you can build enough of that research to get you to that 80%, maybe that's what's going to get investment coming quicker into the company, which then lets them scale faster. They still got 20% wiggle room of proving themselves right or wrong in there, but at least they're further along than typically when you're getting a company coming to you and say, I'm solving this problem, and they're at 20%. Um, and they're like banging their head against the wall saying, why won't anybody invest in me? This is the best solution known to man, but they haven't really defined what the problem is. They haven't really focused in on it. Uh, they haven't, and maybe it's not always creating the papers, but I think it really comes down to understanding what you're trying to solve. And I, I can kind of take it from all the things that we talked about, that a lot of this comes down to understanding the data, researching, and coming up with a, a product fit or a, a building a product that's going to fit to the problem and utilizing all the resources, people and data around you to make that decision quicker. And if it takes you two years to do that at the beginning, then you're going to save yourself uh, time ramping up and moving quickly into the space and raising faster dollars and becoming that so-called unicorn. Yeah, it reminds me of a, a quote that one of the senior surgeons uh, used to say that I, I worked with. It was, uh, plan, plan your act, act your plan, but don't be afraid to be flexible. Um, right. Have an idea of what, what you're going to do, have a plan for how you're going to do it. And if you realize somewhere along the way that it's not working, call an audible. I like that little football in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, so now, taking that kind of model that you're, you're helping companies realize, and, and I'm going to say this has to be valuable for where you guys are at and how you're helping new founders better understand what they're going after, but also where you're going to slot in to invest. You're not just investing in every single person that shows up at the front door. You kind of have to figure out, okay, you're doing your own research. So you're coming up with the questions that are going to be pushing back against their problem and helping them find that market fit along the way. Um, is there anything that helps tweak your interest in it? Like, because you've done so many publications, you've done so many papers, you understand the space of, of getting out there and putting everything out in front of the, the world to kind of hack against it. Because when you write a paper, there's a million other people in um, academia that are like, nope, Jake, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. I don't like this. You're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. You've actually had to fight against that as well. So now you've kind of bring even more to this uh, call it the early stage game, which is not only once you prove it and start solving the problem, you're going to have a lot of naysayers out there. How do you get around all of that? And how do you help those startups realize like, hey, when you're solving a problem, you're going to get pushed back against everything. Everybody's going to come at you full blaze and they're not going to let you move forward. That's when you know you're solving a problem and a good problem. How do you kind of coach people through that? Um, well, I think I, my background really gives me a unique lens within the venture ecosystem, right? There are not a lot of, I like to call myself a recovering surgeon um, out in, in the venture world. And, and it gives you a unique perspective, right? Because I think that uh, clinical um, physicians don't really know what's going on out in industry, um, even if it's within their specific field of interest. Um, and so being in that space, but with the clinical lens, I tend to just kind of push back a little bit harder um, from the clinical perspective, but it's not even, I don't, I don't see it as, 
I, I shouldn't say pushing back. I should say I see it as a resource um, because I understand what they're trying to do, but uh, but with the clinical background that I have, I will often offer unsolicited clinical feedback for these companies and say, you know, your uh, the, the the folks that are coming in to lead your rounds, the VCs that you're going to talk with, they're going to go out and reach out to clinicians. And if that, and if they were approaching me, this is the first thing that I would look at. This is the first thing that I would be concerned about. Um, I will say that Gangels as an organization, uh, we don't lead rounds. We do not set terms. We're very much a strategic follow-on investor. So when these companies are building out kind of their go-to-market strategies um, and their product market fit, uh, we certainly offer them a variety of resources to help, but we're not usually the folks that are in the board boardrooms with them to figure out those specific strategies. No, it makes sense. And, and again, this is all uh, all valuable in the mindset of uh, an early stage company as they start to progress through and learning how to get into the market and, and how they're going to go to market and being able to have a resource like yourself that has the experience, the know-how and has gone through uh, the clinical side and understands that. I think that's super valuable. Um, now, taking that that same experience and working with these companies, you guys bring as a as a business, you bring a lot more to the table than I'll say every other angel group because now you're bringing diversity in, which is something that the world is, I will say, battling with because they're now having to adapt, which is very weird to say that they have to adapt to diversity when uh, the world should be 100% diverse already and understanding it. Uh, and I can say that even from... This was, oh man, years ago, and this isn't even, this is about inclusion, I guess. But uh, when I was working at Loblaws 20 years ago, um, we had to stop using the word Merry Christmas and we had to change everything to Happy Holidays. And, but they never explained why. They just said, do it. And then uh, everything was changing up the photos. The photos had to be making sure that you had diversity across family photos and everything. And this was probably 20, 25 years ago. And I thought it was brilliant. Like, this is great. Yes. Why are we just posting white people everywhere? This is ridiculous. And then we changed it. And then the whole culture and the business changed that way. But it's kind of weird that now there's a position that we're not doing it. It's not being done. And it's so openly out there that it's not being done at the right, uh, the right way of making everybody feel included. It's starting to change a lot today. How are you guys changing this inside of the startup community? Because the startup community is the perfect spot to kind of educate, learn, and have people say, wait a second, I need to change the way I'm actually building this and I'm going to do it today because I'm a new company versus I'm a 400-year-old company and I don't know how to change. It's a great point and thank you for, for raising it. Um, I'll add to that really by saying, you know, the the underlying premise of, of what you were just talking about is that diversity is the right thing to do. And Obviously, I agree with that, but I think we need to move beyond that and really make the argument that diversity is the smart thing to do, right? Um, and don't take my word for it. McKinsey has come out with studies over the past couple of years, multiple studies that show that teams with diverse leadership fiscally outperform teams without it, right? And so it's no longer just the right thing to do. It is the smart thing to do from a company's perspective. Right. And so the way that we help our portfolio companies really breaks down into kind of three major buckets. Um, the first is through participation. We are not only offering uh, venture 
investment to you know this asset class to a group of, of diverse investors who classically have been shut out of venture, right? But we're we're offering uh, mentorship programs and scholarship programs and fellowship programs to underrepresented youth. Um, we have a board uh, inclusion program, and over the past two years have uh, gotten twenty offers from portfolio companies to diverse. Uh, recruits to come sit on their board of directors. And, and now to put this in context, right, through the lifetime of a company, it's exceedingly rare for them to add somebody to their board of directors, right? And it's even more unusual for them to add someone to their board of directors that's not coming from one of the VCs that is leading the round, right? Because most of these rounds lead comes in, they put in 10 million bucks, they get a board seat, right? We're not doing that. We're offering this as a resource to portfolio companies to help them find folks uh, that align with their mission and have the relevant experience and come from diverse backgrounds to sit on their board because it would be helpful for that company. Um, the, the second kind of bucket that we look at is thought leadership. We work with a whole host of organizations, Out Leadership, Out Bio, Ramba, um, to not only bring thought leaders to our portfolio companies and help them approve upon uh, their DEI initiatives, but we also provide a platform for portfolio CEOs uh, who are succeeding in these initiatives to be the future thought leaders, right? It's participating in conversations like this that allow us to expand the reach um, and the footprint of, uh, of our mission. Um, and then the last is purchasing uh, to actually close the generational wealth gap that exists amongst minorities. Uh, we need to provide a space for portfolio companies and others uh, to find, source, and purchase from minority-owned businesses. And so that's something that we're actively working on as well. And so um, the value that we really hope to drive within the ecosystem um, is to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And the hope is, is that someday, um, you know, everyone, whether it's companies that have 100 cis straight white men or companies where every single person is diverse, right? Help everyone move along the spectrum of DEI. And in five, 10 years, you know, hopefully the world will be in a better place. I love it. It's awesome. Uh, and every company should take this up. And if not, I don't know if you guys have put a paper together or put some of this metrics on your site so that everybody can go look at this. But I think it's, uh, it, it's a great position paper or position for businesses in general to read up on this, to learn about it and figure out how they can make changes because the faster they make changes, the better off the business is going to be in the short and the long term because being able to offer and bring all cultures into your business and being able to look at it through different lenses, I think is going to open up everybody in innovation. Um, yeah, if anybody's, if anybody's interested, there, feel free to go to, to gangels.com. Um, we have a letter there that we ask all of our portfolio companies to sign, and it outlines a bunch of strategic initiatives that companies can take to be more inclusive. Ah, that's awesome. Perfect. Well, we'll get those and add that to the show notes after, but Great. Uh, well said. That's, uh, that's awesome. It reminds me of one time I was in uh, a, a meeting at one of 20 years ago when I was working in the startup world and we were making it, they were making some decisions. And um, I remember saying it was a female based uh, product decision and it was all white dudes in the room. And I remember saying, this doesn't really make any sense. Shouldn't we have any females in this? Oh yeah, that's a good idea. And it just blew my mind that even at any point in time that 
we try to make decisions or try to do things on behalf of other people or other cultures or other groups. And I think that that's 10 steps backwards. And I, I think to your whole point, it's all about including people, inclusion and across all uh, sectors, all groups, all cultures. And uh, I think that makes the place, uh, the world a better place. So you guys are doing awesome in that. And I love it and glad that you're able to share that. Appreciate it. Now I'm taking that same kind of um, mantra that you guys and the mission that you guys have put together and the companies that you're investing in, maybe you can share a little bit about more about where the areas are that you heavily focus in. Medical is obviously a massive area. Um, I'm assuming you can't be investing in every sector, but there are certain pieces that really kind of you focus in on. And what is that focus? Is it the hardware side? Is it clinical? Like, where is it that you guys really bring uh, the value to the market to help uh, founders out? Sure. Um so I guess kind of two questions. One is the value that we bring to the market to help founders out. I think a lot of it really centers around the DEI uh, mission and resources that, that we offer, um, whether it's you know board recruitment, C-suite, director level recruitment, educational initiatives, um, thought leader uh, event, thought leadership events. Um, you know, so that, that's kind of the, the piece uh, in terms of our unique value proposition. Um, where we focus as a, an organization is pretty broad. So we're industry agnostic. Um, I, I say that we're stage agnostic, although that's a little bit of a lie. We don't do early, early like friends and family rounds or, or pure angel rounds. Um, we do require that there is institutional capital uh, coming into a company um, and we invest alongside institutional venture capital firms. Um, so, you know, relatively broad in terms of our investment mandate. Uh, but but for us, we're we're about to launch uh, a healthcare fund um, in the near future that is going to focus on the health and well-being of the LGBT community, um, and so that's of particular interest to me. Um, and the companies that we'll support are companies whose success could impact our community, um, and that could mean that it's a, a, a biotech company that is addressing one of the many diseases that, uh, that impact the LGBT community more so than, than other communities. And, and we naturally always kind of think about HIV or mental health or substance use disorders as those, uh, those diseases. But what a lot of people don't realize is that obesity is over-indexed in the LGBT community, as is uh, cervical cancer um, and, and a, a host of other conditions that um, you know, that, that impact our community more so than the average population. And then there are the social determinants of health as well, um, right? There's a, a large portion of LGBT youth that suffer from homelessness, that suffer from, uh, you know, um, uh, financial issues um, or uh, socioeconomic and, and in, in general, just social issues. Uh, and so impacting those social determinants of health will have an impact on their general health. Um, and so those are the companies that we're really uh, looking at for, for this fund. That's brilliant. And I think a lot of that um, on the impact side to health, I think even in the, the community, you're also looking at mental health, which I think is probably a really strong component uh, because I think when you have what the communities had to go through, there's a lot of weight on the shoulders of anybody in the uh, LGTB community. And I think they have a lot of where do I go? How do I get help? Who do I talk to? And uh, I see a lot of uh, products and startups coming out in that space too. So it's Absolutely. good that the, the space is getting exposure. 
Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I'm really excited about is not only the direct impact on, you know, for mental health companies and, and companies that are directly addressing mental health issues for our community, but also the companies that are tangentially involved, right? There are companies that are addressing uh, competency within clinical care settings so that LGBT people feel welcome when they go to a hospital and that they feel like they're not being, you know, studied or taken advantage of because of who they are. Um, there are companies who help with the financial stability uh, for the LGBT community specifically, right? I think we can all agree that if you're more financially stable, your mental health will likely improve, right? And so there are plenty of companies that might be, you know, a fintech company, and, and we don't necessarily see the direct impact on mental health, but it's certainly there. And so that's a space that I'm excited about. Well, that's great. Awesome. Um, and, and one last kind of um, inquiry or question around the um, position of how you're helping on the C-suite and with the board side. Um, have you built up uh, over time? Are you going out and looking for people that are specific to the industry so that you can drive them in? Or have you do you have them coming in as investors? How do you kind of work inside that space? Because again, it's pretty broad, but at the same time, it's so needed. So how are you guys doing a lot of outreach to kind of figure out who positionally can we start to bring in, educate on boards because maybe they're new, they haven't been on the board side. So how do you kind of work that side? Because I think this is actually not only critical to the business and the model that you're going after, but I think for all startups uh, generally need the same type of help. So how have you kind of tackled that? Um, yeah, it's a great question. So we have an internal team that is free for all of our portfolio companies um, to help them recruit qualified board members. And so we're not uh, necessarily in the business of educating new board members. What we do is we is we help our portfolio companies uh, source candidates from diverse communities that bring tremendous strategic value to these companies. Um, independent of of their background right these are these are folks that you want on your board because they're smart and they're driven and they're accomplished and they happen to be from a diverse background um and so that that's kind of really the space that we're in in terms of board recruitment um in terms of general recruitment we've got the largest jobs board in the world dedicated to dei within venture last month alone we had over ten thousand unique visitors um, and uh, again, people could find that if they're interested in connecting with any of our portfolio companies, they can go to gangels.com slash jobs. Um, and uh, we are also the co-founders of a company called Matheson, which is a diversity recruitment platform. Um, and we work with a variety of different recruitment uh, platforms to help our portfolio companies source diverse talent. Um, it's important and it's difficult. Uh, I think one of the things that often kind of goes unnoticed or maybe undervalued is, is also just the ability to congregate. As an organization, we this year, I think are gonna probably throw about 200 events. And that gives founders and investors the opportunity to come and meet people uh, from, you know, from all over the place, from background, from from diverse backgrounds, right? Naturally, when a company wants to hire a new CFO or a new, you know, head of marketing or a new whatever, you, you recruit from your network. And if your network looks like you and acts like you and comes from where you come from, it's not wrong to tap into that network, right? But then all of a sudden you look around and you have a bunch of cis straight white guys sitting at the table. Um, and so we help people diversify their network by also uh, bringing folks together. Um, 
And so that that's something that really drew me. And, and like I said before, that's actually how I met Gangels was at one of those events. That's brilliant, man. And, and I love uh, everything you've shared. I think it's uh, it's a great story. And I love how you've transitioned into working in this space. The startup world needs you. They need people that understand the, the clinical medical side, but also being able to understand how to build inclusion in and help them grow their business. But taking that detail-oriented side uh, that you've learned throughout your schooling and through your uh, your practice. So I think all of these things are super valuable. And uh, uh, I can say that uh, the startup world is appreciative and glad that you joined it because uh, you're making a big impact. And uh, that's awesome. So now Thanks. taking all that, that learning that we've uh, just kind of talked about, we're going to transition ourselves now into kind of call it the case study. Um, but I'm sure you've worked with so many different founders. There's got to be a lot of great stories that you can share. Just looking for one story that you can share that really kind of denotes what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Well, you know, I, I, I won't claim to know what it takes to be an entrepreneur. Um, I have never been one. I have never started a company. I have never personally built a company. Um, one of my partners uh, often reminds us of the fact that being the CEO uh, you know, and founder of a company can oftentimes be the loneliest place in the world. Um, and the reason is because there's nobody at your level, right? There is nobody there um, who is doing exactly what you're doing. And you're usually the busiest person in, in the company. Uh, but oftentimes it's, it's difficult, uh, to manage from a professional, but also from a personal standpoint, how to grow a company and have, and have people depend on you, um, you know, for, for their career, for their job to pay the bills. Right. Um, and so what, what I would say, uh, is it's important to find community. It's important for, uh, for CEOs, for founders to connect with each other, um, to understand that there is a network and that there is a community of folks that are in similar positions and opportunity to learn from them. Um, we've leveraged this, you know, internally to connect uh, CEOs and, and founders into small pods where they can connect with each other. But, um, you know, I think it, it has kind of broader implications on the venture community in general, which is to say, reach out and find people that are in similar positions because um, those are the people that you're going to connect with and learn from. No, well said. Love it. And it's so true that when you, when you build something or you work on something and you can be around like-minded people, it builds the energy up. You're kind of all striving for that same goal, the same way of hitting the market. Even if you're in two separate verticals or again, total different space, it's the fact that you're able to do that with somebody else. And I know when I started my first company, um, uh, her name is Andrea. Uh, we met every single day at the coffee shop and she was starting what she was going to do. She left her role and uh, I was working on a company and we just bounced ideas. And it was, you know, 20 years ago. But the, the point was that you were trying to figure out what you were trying to do, but it was someone that was doing it at the same time. And it kind of made it easier, even though it was hard or harder it was just having somebody that had the same mindset of where they wanted to go, even though they were two separate businesses, it was trying to drive somewhere in a direction that you both could leverage and help each other. And I think if you like you created the pods, those are great ways to keep people interacting, working together and moving forward. And uh, there's also the, the great thing is that you're networking. And if uh, something goes wrong, you know, you have a group of people that are going to jump in to help you out. Exactly. 
couldn't have said it better myself. Love it. All right, we're going to go into the rapid fire questions. Let's do it. Are we ready for it? Okay, we're going to start with the business questions first. So uh, it's pick one or the other. And again, it's coming from you as an investor. So you're just going to pick the one that fits best uh, on how you would invest. And then we'll go into the personal side. Okay. All right. First question, founder or co-founder? For me personally? Uh, for the business as you guys make investments. Uh, founder. Founder. Unicorn or a four-year 10x exit? Uh, the latter. Okay. Tech or CPG? Tech. NFT or Web 3.0? Web 3.0. AI or blockchain? AI. First-time founder or a second, third-time founder? Second, third. First money in or Series A? Series A. Angel or VC? VC. Board seat or observer? Observer. Safe or convertible note? Convertible note. Lead or follow? Follow. Equity or interest payments? Equity. Favorite part of investing? Meeting people. Number, number of companies invested per year? Um... Let's say 500, but to be honest, I don't know the exact number. You guys have to be the number one investment group of the uh, out there. That's awesome. Uh, Crunchbase and PitchBook uh, last year and the first two quarters of this year, I think ranked us number one or number two. That's brilliant. Thanks. Uh, any preferred terms? Uh, we strictly follow VCs, um, so we don't negotiate terms. Okay. Uh, and just to reiterate, verticals of focus? Totally agnostic. Two qualities a startup needs in order to stand out to you? Um, innovation. You need to truly have an innovative approach to a problem. Um, and I would say commitment. Um, the folks that get me excited about whatever it is that they're building are the ones that are already excited about what they're building. I love it. Okay, we're gonna do the personal side now. Sure. Book or movie? Book. Restaurant or picnic? Restaurant. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Oprah. Mountain or beach? Beach. Batman or Robin? Batman. Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? Neither. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, beer or wine? Wine. Trophy or money? Uh, money. Camera or mobile phone? Mobile phone. King, queen, or rich? Queen. Concert or amusement park? Concert. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Uh, birthday cake, for sure. TED Talk or book reading? TED Talk. TikTok or Instagram? Instagram. Facebook or LinkedIn? LinkedIn. Most famous person that pops in your mind? Oprah. <laughs> I think I staged that one. A little bit. 
<laughs> favorite movie and what character would you play? Oh boy. Um, to be honest, I'm not the biggest movie buff. Um, yeah, I, I, on, I couldn't even give you a favorite. And mostly because most of the movies that I like don't end particularly well. So I wouldn't want to be a character in any of them. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that, that makes sense. All right. Favorite book? Um, I would say uh, In Our Prime by Susan Douglas. Have to write that down. I haven't heard that one, so that's uh, one I'm going to have to check out. First brand that pops in your mind? Apple. Apple's up there. You know, I'm going to say that if we go through every single one of these that I've done, Apple has to be at least 70% of choice. Now, well, I'm sure you know it's because why. we're looking at the screen, yeah. but they're, they're, I do think that outside that, they just do one hell of a job on their marketing side. So I'm, I'm, uh, I know products were on them, but still, no one's picking Microsoft, even if they're using a Microsoft laptop. Interesting. Yeah, I just happen to be looking at a, an Apple computer, so. <laughs> Same. Um, favorite sports team? Uh, Yankees. Nice. All right, we're almost there. Uh, what is the meaning of success to you? Finding impact and changing lives, actually changing lives of people. I like it. And only because we, uh, we didn't hit it on the first way through, one thing about you that nobody would know. That I once sang at the Super Bowl. What? Yeah. Uh, oh, that's incredible. I didn't see that anywhere. Where is this? I want to yeah, see it. Uh, I used to be in an acapella group out of, based out of New York City. They, they still exist. I'm not in anymore. Once I uh, went into residency, I had to leave. But, um, but yeah, they, we one year sang at the Super Bowl in the Meadowlands. Yeah. Uh, at like the NFL pregame a uh, couple minutes before John Legend went on. Oh, that's incredible, man. That's cool. I'm assuming you got to stay and watch the game and everything else like that, too. No, we didn't. <laughs> really? I know. I know well, the, ticket, the tickets are, you know, gajillions of dollars. and Totally, but you guys yeah, got yeah. to perform there. You'd think that they'd let you hang out. But either way, that's still a cool story, man. You'd think. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Oh, I bet. That's so, so cool. Um, all right. What, last question. What is your superpower? Um, empathy. I can, uh, I can attest to that. I think uh, you've done a lot of great things. I think that you're uh, a visionary and you've also been able to break into an area based on all your learnings and open up a whole new world, which I think is all part of that empathy. It's seeing and believing and diving into something great. And you're doing a lot of great things. I, I enjoyed diving into in your entire background. It was incredible. So uh, thank you for sharing all of that. Thank you for sharing everything you have with us today. Um, and yeah, just thanks for, for being here. It's been, uh, it's been awesome. Thanks for having me, Jeffrey. I appreciate it. Well, the, the way we like to end our show is we like to give you the last word, Jake. So anything that uh, you want to share to the investor or to the startup community, I turn it over to you. But again, thank you for sharing. I've got so many notes. It's crazy, <laughs> um, but uh, it's awesome. You're, uh, you're a good man. Thank you. 
Um, oh God, last last words. I would say um, in the current political climate, we're seeing a lot of uh, aggression towards underserved communities um, and trying to limit the uh, the rights and privileges that some of those communities have and the people in uh, the venture and startup ecosystem are quite literally building the infrastructure and the future of health and tech and consumer and blockchain and, and finance. Um, and it's important to remember that those communities uh, exist and that they deserve uh, fair representation and that um, and that it's important to build a, a world in which they are equal. I love it. Very well said, very well shared. Jake, thank you again. Awesome. Thanks, Jeffrey. Well, that was great, Jake. It was fantastic. The um, loved really diving into so many good things that uh, Jake and team have been able to put together. Um, and I'll share that uh, some of the things that he talked about, uh, especially going into um, building the community side, uh, connecting with and making sure that teams are diverse. Uh, I love the concept around creating pods so that founders can work together and finding similarities and, and finding ways to help each other and support each other as they grow. I think all of these really make and help support startups in that early spa space. And uh, diversity and inclusion, and it's so key to any business today in making sure that all of these pieces all come together, enabling a company to have a different view of the world, a different uh, culture. I think all of these little pieces are really what are going to help uh, a company survive and, and go the, the time and build a, a great scalable business. And of course, um, doing that from the board perspective is also uh, a, a huge part. And I love the fact that. Um, uh, they also work and focus on that participation side, which was the mentorship and coaching. Um, and then his two points, which was fully committed and innovation. Uh, great two ideas or great two pieces that you got to stick behind in order to make a company investable is that they are they have a strong innovation, but they're also committed uh, strongly into their business. So uh, love it, Jake. Great sharing. Great to connect. Um, very well done. Thank you for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to share with your friends or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or Stitcher. Feel free to share an audio or video clip um, around our show, and we may include it in one of our future podcasts. Find us at marketing at openpeoplenetwork.com. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. You can always check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit openpeoplenetwork.com. Thank you and have a fantastic day.